they may not refer to him using the same terminology you or I might, but most thinking people acknowledge in one way or another the existence of a deity, a uh, supreme being. Now, there are those who claim to be atheists, but frankly, though they're loud, they're in the minority. Most acknowledge the existence of a, a supreme being. That's good. But it isn't good enough. If there is this God who exists, then you must answer certain uh, overwhelming questions like, this God who exists, what is he like? And two, what does this God expect of me? How could I be on good terms with the God who is there? If one acknowledges the existence of deity, a transcendent being, but hasn't come to grips with how to be right with him, then one has really fallen short. So in a quest to the answer that question, how could I be on good terms with the God who is there? There really are only two options. One is to acknowledge he has standards and expectations I must live up to, and I have to do it either by coming up with standards of behavior I think will be acceptable to him or by joining a religious faith group that gives me a list of things to do so that I don't even have to think about it. Prescribed fasting days, ordained certain days of worship, rituals and so on, which are not inherently bad. These are attempts. They're rungs on a ladder. God this transcendent deity you believe is high and lifted up. I'm not. Therefore, I have to climb this ladder of performance and achievement. And uh, whether it has a religious veneer or just a moral and ethical emphasis, you've opted for the option of uh, performing and sacrificing in certain ways in order to, well, hopefully appease this God who you know uh, has standards you have fallen short from. That's one option. Uh, the second option is to say, been there, done that, and it doesn't work. Uh, you're someone who's made an attempt at uh, uh, um, complying with the standards of a particular religious grouping, whatever it may be. Uh, you've tried to live according, perhaps, to your own standards, and you are persuaded that it doesn't work out. Because either your religious ideology or your uh, fabricated moral and ethical approach to God has left you with the awareness that what those standards tell you to do, you're not doing. And what those standards tell you not to do, you don't do. So uh, you have realized um, uh, that doesn't work, performing so as to be right with God has left me falling far uh, short. And so you've chosen this other option, and that is to hear of and be embraced by the overwhelming good news that God has made a provision for our shortcomings, our flaws, our humanness, our sin. This God who is there and is unapproachable on your terms has provided a bridge uh, a mediatorial system. He's done this in a remarkable way. And if you go through the mediator, then you can be on right terms with God. So uh, your option is not a do-it-yourself approach to God. It's a done-for-you approach. Now, uh, though there are differences when it comes to vocabulary and specifics, the whole world could be uh, the relig religious systems of the whole world could be divided on the basis of these two options, and people can. You're either embracing one approach to God, your efforts, or the other approach to God. You're just going to put your confidence in what God has done to provide for your shortcomings, your sin, your transgressions. Paul was someone first who was enveloped in the first option. In his case, it was rabbinical Judaism. And he was no neophyte. He was really coming to be a climber in Judaism, studying under some of the most esteemed rabbis. And he was embracing not only the law of Moses, which our rabbis tell us 
uh, consists, as I mentioned last week, not of 10 commandments, but 613 as offshoots of the law. But Paul embraced these, and in addition, he embraced the uh, additions to the law of Moses the rabbis have come up with. Uh, The rabbis uh, said the law is holy, and to protect people from crossing the line, uh, they've surrounded the law with a hedge of rabbinical additions to the law that will keep you even from being tempted to get close to disobeying the law. So the rabbis have defined all manner of things called the tradition of the elders, and Paul embraced even those. So not only the fundamental laws of Moses given on Mount Sinai, but the accretions to it given by rabbis. Paul said, that's what I'm doing. Well, apparently it didn't work out. And on one occasion, ironically, in his quest to persecute those who embraced the second option, namely there is a way to be right with God and had nothing to do with your works or performance, virtue or merit. On the way to persecuting those who then were called members of the way, he was radically approached by his own Messiah, whom he came to know and was so marvelously affected by the good news that uh, in his place, God sent a substitute for his sin so that he could, in embracing this Messiah, enter into what the Bible refers to as Sabbath rest, not a day, a lifestyle. Just as God ceased from his work of physical creation on Shabbat, the Sabbath, so too we're invited under the gospel of grace, to cease from our work um, of seeking our own spiritual redemption and enter into Sabbath rest. This was such good news for Paul. He was just set free. He couldn't keep this news to himself. So he ceased being uh, a rabbi climbing the rungs of man-made Judaism and instead became an ambassador for Yeshua, his own Messiah. And uh, he loved his people, Jewish people, and did not withhold the gospel from them, but felt a peculiar calling to take the gospel in particular to Gentile people in the area. And so he found a group of Gentiles at a place called Galatia, and he shared this gospel of grace with them, and they were overwhelmed. Here were uh, primarily Gentile folk who were not part and parcel of the law of Moses. It wasn't given to them on Mount Sinai. It was given to the Jews. And they didn't think they in any way could be part of a covenant with God as the Jews were. And Paul told them, no, you don't have to become Jewish. You you have to accept the work of the Jewish Messiah. But you don't have to take on the law of Moses, which was never given to you to begin with. Well, they did. And they were unbelievably, overwhelmingly set free. They thought they, second-class citizens, had no chance ever of being right with God. And all of a sudden, they are. And they're no longer second-class citizens. They're uh, equally, uh, they find equal access to the throne of grace. They're set free, saved by grace. But there are grace killers always right there, nearby. And in this case, it was a group called the Judaizers, Jews, the Judaizers. And they did not, interestingly, deny Christ crucified. They denied that Christ crucified was enough. They said to the Galatian believers, most of whom were Gentiles, we're so happy that you have embraced this Yeshua. Really good. But of course, you know, that's not enough. He's done a wonderful thing, but it's an insufficient thing. In order for you to really be a tzaddik, Hebrew, in order for you to be really right with God, you have to embrace the law of Moses, as we have. In particular, they foisted upon the Gentiles the right of circumcision. And so they told them, this is the sign of God's covenant with us. If you want to join with us, You must participate in the rite of circumcision as well. Furthermore, said they, you must do the other aspects of the law of Moses. Now, this was an ironic thing to do because they couldn't live by it, nor 
Could they live up to it? And yet somehow they thought this burden of the law was appropriate to, to, to pronounce upon these Gentile believers. And so it was shaking them up because it caused them to question the adequacy of Christ's substitutionary atonement. Well, Paul, having been so set free from bondage to the law, was upset about this. And so he decided to defend the gospel of grace. And we saw his initial defense of it last week in the first part of Galatians chapter 3. That's what we've been studying. And today, I would like to show you his defense as it continues in the second part of Galatians 3. And so we'll pick up what he has to say in Galatians 3, verse 15. Please join me there. Galatians 3, verse 15. Here's what he says. Brethren, he's speaking to believers. I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So so let me tell you something. I think I understand the thrust of Paul's argument. I think I get the main point. But I have to admit to you, it's deep and complicated. So listen carefully and tell me if you think what I'm telling you makes sense. Because some of what Paul says is, uh, uh, is tricky. I think what he's saying here in that verse is this. It's an analogy. He's going to share a profound truth through something we could relate to, something like a last will and testament. Somebody goes into an attorney and forms a will. With the attorney's help, you make it a legal document, and there's conditions and provisions, and you sign, he signs, it's notarized, and all the rest. Paul's argument is this. As with even a mere human document like a last will and testament, who has a right to add to it or delete from it? You can say, no, 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 wills can be changed today. Yeah, but only if you comply with the procedures by which you do it. Yeah, you can have a codicil, an amendment to the will, but not out of the blue. No one could just come up to someone's will and tamper with it nor amend it. You have to follow the right procedures. And so Paul is saying, if this is true when it comes to human transactions, how much more when it comes to a divine covenant, the likes of which God made with Abraham? This is his argument. God made a covenant, entered into a covenant with Abraham. We spoke about it in times past, called the Abrahamic covenant. There are certain terms in the Abrahamic covenant. The Judaizers are saying those terms have been changed by the Mosaic covenant, which came centuries later. And Paul is saying, if you can't even amend a human document, which has legal ramifications, how dare you Judaizers, how dare you have the audacity to think you can toy with and amend a divine covenant, a divine transaction that God made with Abraham. That's exactly what the Judaizers are seeking to do. So he goes on, verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. Now, in case we don't know what he's saying, because it's deep, well, we're helped here. Your seed, Christ. And so here's Paul's argument. God entered into a transaction with Abraham. And here's what it was. Remember, he took Abraham out from his tent. He said, look up at the stars. Can you count the stars? Of course not. And uh, God said, so shall your descendants be. This is to a man advanced in years and whose wife has passed the normal years of childbearing. They longed for a child, thought they couldn't produce one. God brings him out and says, oh, you'll produce more than one. Look at the stars. If you can count them, do it. So shall your descendants be. Then we read this profound text, Genesis 15, verse 6. I call it the gospel in the Old Testament. Uh, Then... He, Abraham, believed in the Lord. He accepted God's promises. And on that basis, it says, and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. It's huge. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Righteousness uh, attributed to the account of a sinner like Abraham, not on the basis of any good things he has done, on the basis of his faith. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteous. Folks, that's the gospel 
in the Old Testament. See, this is long before Abraham could have complied with the law of Moses because it didn't come into existence for centuries later. That's the Abrahamic covenant. So the basis of Abraham's rightness with God had nothing to do with his ethnicity, the rituals he subscribed to, his good deeds, his performance. It had everything to do with the fact that he accepted the legitimacy and truthfulness of God's promise to him. Then he believed faith in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now the Judaizers are saying that's nice, but it isn't good enough. And the Bible here, Paul says, that promise to Abraham culminated not in his seeds, but in his seed, the ultimate seed of Abraham being Jesus Christ. It says right there. And so between Abraham and Christ, justification, being made just or right with God, has always been by faith alone. People say, uh, how were people saved in the Old Testament for the Lord? Same basis. Justification by faith alone through God's grace. So, So this is kind of what Paul is saying. So in verse 17, he goes on to say, what I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. So he's speaking lawyerly here, and he's upholding, in essence, the seniority of the Abrahamic covenant. He's saying, how could anyone have the audacity to seek to amend the Abrahamic covenant, which preceded, thus has seniority, which preceded the Mosaic covenant by 430 years. Who has a right, who has a right to, to do this? That's kind of his, his argument. And then it says in verse 18, for if the inheritance, what's the inheritance? Well, it's salvation. If the inheritance is based on law, human performance, then it's no longer based on a promise. So once again, Paul is distinguishing the two categories of being right with God. One is the law, which means human performance, and the other is promise, accepting God's promised provision. If the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. In other words, uh, God's means of justification to Abraham was not do this, it was accept this. The law says, do this in your quest to be right with God. Promise says, accept this and you will be right with God. As in Abraham's day, so too today, we're left with a choice. Which is it going to be, one or the other? But Paul, brilliant, anticipating what the Judaizers will say, they'll say, good night, Rabbi Shaul, Rabbi Paul sees no value in the law. God gave the Torah, the law on Mount Sinai. It is good, for God is good. And Paul has the audacity to dismiss it as if it is no, of no value. So Paul answers, asks and answers a question he anticipates they're going to ask. Here it is, verse 19. Why the law then? What's the point? And then he answers his own question. It was added because of transgressions. The law of Moses does not contravene the Abrahamic covenant. It was added to it for a reason, to accomplish another purpose. Well, what's the purpose? Let me read to you a corollary passage also written by Paul. Romans 5 verse 20. He says, the law came in so that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Here's what Paul is saying. To help us see our impoverished state of affairs, God sent the law through Moses, a system of do's and don'ts. So we could see we're not doing what we're supposed to do. We are doing what we're not supposed to do. That says something not about the law, but about me. I realize the law is good, but when it is matched up with me, it reveals the fact that I'm not good. I'm a law breaker. Apart from the law, which says, don't do this, do that, 
I really don't have as much evidence of my sinful nature as I need in order to hunger for a different system of righteousness with God. The law cannot produce righteousness nor life. It reveals to me I'm essentially on the outs with God. It's really good. I have no argument with the law of God. I simply can't live up to it. Even on a good day, I'm not doing what it says to do, which leaves me guilty before God. Woe is me. The very thing I want to do, I don't do. What I ought to do, uh, I don't do that. Who's going to set me free? So the law, its purpose was to conjure up a hunger for a different system of being made right with God. So the text in Romans said, where sin increased, more laws, more laws, grace abounded all the more. By the way, do you realize the proliferation of legislation in our society today? To me, it's an indication of the lawlessness of our society. It's unbelievable. You need a law for everything in an attempt, a vain attempt, to curb lawless human behavior. All along, all the law is doing is pointing out just how lawless we are. So Paul is saying, oh, I'm not saying there's no purpose of the law. Here's the purpose. It is to produce without uh, question an awareness of the fact that we are all lawbreakers and need God's grace. And so he goes on to say in verse 19, the law, therefore, is inferior to the Abrahamic covenant because all the law can do is define our sinlessness. It can't provide a solution to it. It's inferior in that regard. And secondly, in this regard, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. This is very interesting. Paul is saying the Abrahamic covenant was made by God with Abraham directly. No mediator, no angelic mediators, no human mediator like Moses. That makes it superior to the law of Moses, which required a mediator. God took the law of Moses in a way I don't understand, gave it to angels who, in a way I don't understand, then gave it to Moses, who then gave it to Israel. And Paul is essentially pointing out the direct nature of the Abrahamic covenant shows it is superior to the law of Moses, which came to Israel third hand, so to speak. Furthermore, he points out the inferiority of the law to grace by saying, until the seed... Now, we already know the seed is Christ. That's not my interpretation. Paul already made that clear. Until the seed, until Jesus would come to whom the promise had been made. So here's uh, what Paul is saying. The law of Moses has a shelf life. It came into existence at a point. It goes out of existence at a point. It came into existence on Mount Sinai. It goes out of existence on Mount Calvary. Not the moral aspects of the law. We're still not allowed to kill or steal. The ceremonial, ritual, sacrificial requirements of the law. There is no sacrificial system. We don't make an offering to God to appease him anymore because the seed has come, the ultimate lamb of God, who totally pleases God and satisfies the requirements of the law. So Paul is saying the law, which you Judaizers are laying on these Gentile believers, is uh, temporary. And therefore, the permanent, the Abrahamic covenant, is superior to that which is temporary, the law of Moses. That's what he's saying, it seems to me. Now he goes on, verse 20. Now a mediator is not for one party only. If there's one party who's initiating a contract or a covenant, you don't need a mediator because there's only one party, not two. That's what it says. A mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. What's he saying? You know, when God entered into covenant relationship with Avram, he was then called Abraham and his seed, Abraham had nothing to do with it. If you look at Genesis 12, the institution of the Abrahamic covenant, you will see God saying, I will, I will, I will. I will bless those who bless thee. 
I will curse those who curse thee. I will give you a land promise, etc., etc. Show me one case in Genesis 12 where it says, I will if you will. No. See, that would be a two-party thing requiring a mediator. Abraham had nothing to do with God's initiative in establishing the unconditional Abrahamic covenant. This was all done by God's grace. Now you see, but Abraham had to accept it. You don't get brownie points for accepting a gift. I mean, someone out of the blue later today comes up to you and gives you a gift. Makes you feel uncomfortable because you know you didn't do anything to warrant it. It's just a random act of gift giving. All you did was hold your hand open and the gift is placed. You don't get credit for accepting a gift. And interestingly, the Bible refers to the gospel of grace as an inexpressible gift. It's irrational. It's a random act of gift giving by God. You and I, a lawbreaker, we're just walking along, breaking the law in thought, word, and deed. And all of a sudden, a most holy God invades our space and gives us the opportunity of receiving a gift. You don't get credit for that. You're not a signatory to the gift giving. You're just a recipient of it. And so Paul is pointing out here, so too with the Abrahamic covenant, justification by grace, even in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, Abraham had nothing to do with it. This was all God's initiative. But that's not true with the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant essentially said, if you obey the word of God you will be blessed. If you violate the commandments, you will be cursed. And all Israel, in essence, signed on the dotted line at the foot of Mount Sinai. They said, this law, we will do. We will do. And so you have two parties to the conditional Mosaic covenant, but only one with reference to the Abrahamic covenant God alone initiated it. Can you see the superiority of this plan of being made right with God, therefore, uh, by grace through faith, than the law, you having to work for it? I cannot live up. I can't fulfill those requirements under the Abrahamic covenant, which parallels the New Testament. I don't have to comply. I have to accept by promise, by faith, God's provision for my sin. So now, Paul, in anticipation of another uh, uh, rebuttal by the opposition, says this in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Paul is imagining they're hearing him juxtapose uh, the promises of God with the law and putting them in competition with one another. So he says, no, no, may it never be. In fact, he uses the strongest form of negation available to him in Greek. May it never be. He's essentially saying, no way, no way. Is the law contrary to the promise? Absolutely not. Why not? For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. You know what he's saying? They're not competing systems because they don't purport to do the same thing. The law never claims to impart life and make you righteous. Therefore, it's a complement, as we'll see, to the Abrahamic covenant, but doesn't compete with it. The Abrahamic covenant under which we are justified in God's eyes by faith, it imparts life and right standing with God. But it's not in competition with the law because the law never claimed to do that. The law points out sin, but it can't resolve the sin problem. Someone has used this analogy. The law is like a mirror. You look into it, you see a smudge on your face. But the mirror can't do a thing about getting rid of it. You need a bar of soap. The law is the mirror. The gospel of grace is the bar of soap. So Paul is saying, how dare you force me into this thing whereby you see me putting the law in opposition to the gospel of grace. They're not opposing one another because they're not even in the same ball game. The law doesn't purport to give life in any way, shape, or form. Only the gospel of grace could do that. Then he goes on, verse 22, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. 
He's telling the Judaizers, just read your own Bible. It shuts up everyone under sin. Even the most arrogant, even the most boastful, read the scriptures. It shuts up everyone. It's like it imprisons you under sin. The scripture, the law, thus becomes a prison guard. It has put you in jail because the scriptures clearly indicate you're not doing what they say to do. You're doing what they say not to do. The scriptures, therefore, put you under bondage, imprison you under the, in, this, in this prison of human efforts and pride and performance. Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise of faith by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody. See the prison analogy again? We were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. So Paul is saying the law imprisons you. You think you're free to uh, win God's favor by the doing of good things. You're not. You're actually a prisoner. You're confined to your own law-breaking nature. Furthermore, verse 24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So you see the word tutor? It's not a good translation. I don't want to shake up your faith, but can I tell you the Greek word that underlines that word tutor? I bet you're familiar with it. It's the word pedagogue or pedagogue. It means child custodian, pedagogue. Paul is using the word with regard to a custom in that day, which we don't have today. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. So it's actually wrongly translated tutor. It's not exactly accurate. Pedagogue is this. Well, let me give you this analogy. In slavery in America, a few hundred years ago, the white slave master often would conscript a black woman slave to raise his children. Um, the, uh, the black lady who had no choice in the matter essentially became the surrogate parent raising this white little brat. And the function of this lady was to uh, define uh, the right way to go. So when this little kid got off the path, the slave lady, the pedagogue, the child custodian would say, no, no, get back on the path. She was given the responsibility to impart to this little kid a system of morals and, exes, uh, and ethics and right living. And also, she could discipline this little kid. Don't do that. That is wrong. That was very commonplace. Well, the same practice existed when Paul wrote this and used the word pedagogue. In Greco-Roman culture, again, slavery existed. And a slave lady could be uh, conscripted to do the same thing, kind of like be a nanny, a strict nanny, except you're not getting paid for it. You have no choice. You're a slave. But you'd kind of serve the purpose. You would be the child custodian. That's what the word pedagogue means. You'd be the child. You have custody of the child to raise the child in a good way. Tell the child how to stay on the path. Rebuke the, and discipline the child. The child gets off the path. Paul is saying, that's what the law did to you. At a certain point in your spiritual odyssey and adventure, you are quite immature, infantile, and childlike. God sent the law to be, for you, kind of a child custodian. And so the law points out to you when you're getting off path, when you're not doing what is right. It served the purpose of showing you when you uh, were a wrongdoer and also warning you about the judgment uh, which is to follow. The law served as a tutor, and it created in you such an awareness of your infantile nature, of your uh, 
of the custodianship which the law had upon you. You were locked up under it. You were imprisoned to it. You'd get up every day, and you don't need a preacher. In your heart, you know, I'm not doing what God wants me to do. And you need this nanny, the law. You need this child custodian to define for you all of the misbehaviors which are part and parcel of who you are. And it caused such discomfort and such dissatisfaction. It created you a hunger in the other approach to God, and that is to be justified by faith. That's the purpose of the law, Paul says. It was a strict nanny to point out to you what a bad kid you are. And once you became persuaded what a bad kid you are, you were open to God's alternative provision for your badness, justification by faith. And Paul's implication is this. You've outgrown the need for the nanny. Why are you going back under it? You have grown from childlike insistence that you under the law can be pleasing to God. You've been persuaded that though the law is good, you ain't. And having been persuaded of that and having accepted by faith God's justification by faith, why are you going back under the nanny? It's like a mature adult reverting back to childlike behavior. And so it says in verse 25, but now, time indicator, there was the past, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Grow up, Paul is saying to the Galatian believers. You've accepted Christ crucified in place of your sin. He has imputed to your account righteousness, right standing with God. Therefore, why are you regressing and tempted by the Judaizers to go back under the law? Why are you giving it custodianship over you? Did it clean up your act before? Did it impart life? Did it give you a sense of being right with God? It did not. It just taught you that you're a sinner. Now that you're persuaded of that, have accepted the sin bearer, we're no longer under a pedagogue, a nanny. Verse 26, for you are all sons. That's a different term. <laughs> that means mature son or daughter. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. A grown child who's now an adult doesn't need a pedagogue anymore. Therefore, why are you putting yourself back under one? That's essentially what it's saying here. And then verse 27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Now, folks, can you misunderstand this first? Look, look, um, Paul is not saying here, as some suggest he is, you have to be baptized to be saved. I'm not minimizing the holy nature of baptism. I'm simply saying it never was meant to save baptism just gets you wet. I mean, baptism cannot change your life. Now, how could it be that Paul, who is railing against the possibility that circumcision plus faith in Christ saves you, why would he substitute baptism but faith in Christ saves you? He's not saying that. He's using the term baptism in the sense of union with and identification with Christ. All of you who have accepted him have been identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. As a result, you've clothed yourself with Christ. Now, here's what happened in Paul's day. Uh, when in Greek and Roman culture, a young child grew to a level of maturity to define it, that this person is now a contributing member of society and member of the state, uh, a new toga would be given to this child. Everyone would see it. Paul is using this essentially saying, when by faith you were baptized, you were united in Christ Jesus. You took off your old apparel of human performance and uh, good works as a means of salvation. And you moved on to maturity from the need for a pedagogue to being a, an adult son or daughter of God. And to indicate it, New clothing, 
You've been enveloped and wrapped in the garments of Christ's righteousness imputed to your account. Now, why in the world would you take off that new apparel only to replace it with the old apparel that you cast aside one time before? And that's what Paul says the Galatians are doing. And I think Paul, by extension, says the same thing to folks today who say faith in Jesus Christ saves, but not entirely. Faith in Christ plus. If you put anything in the equation after the plus sign, you are committing the Galatian heresy. Faith in Christ plus. You have to worship on Saturday instead of Sunday. Faith in Christ plus baptism. Faith in Christ plus, you got to be a member of a church. Whatever. No. It has to be faith in Christ plus nothing. That alone is the gospel of grace. Remember, it's not a two-party covenant in the sense that God lives up to his part of the bargain if you live up to yours. No. God knows you and I are not going to live up to our part of the bargain. (laughs) Therefore, the new covenant is unconditional. The new covenant is a provision, not contingent, on our part of the bargain, which we wouldn't live up to. So Paul is saying, why are you reverting back to the old ways? Then he says this in verse 28, an oft-misused verse. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. So today, folks who have an ideological agenda use this to say, you see, Uh, all distinctions, particularly between gender, have been erased. You know, the foolishness of that argument looms so large. How do you even respond to that? I mean, I I could, for instance, say, all those who are males in this room, please raise your hand. Okay, thank you. All those who are females, please raise your hand. You mean, you know, it's not a big, you know, which one, which category you're in. But I don't do that anymore because apparently there's some confusion about that. Within the bounds of normalcy, however, there are noticeable distinctions between between men and women. Not in terms of worth and value. I didn't say that. But there are distinctions of other kinds. Don't tell me there's no longer any more Jew nor Greek or Gentile. There is. I'm a Jew. You ain't. I'm not better than anyone just maybe better looking, but not. There are distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. What are you talking about? The next time there's a, a campaign to persecute the Jews, you'll be fine. I won't be. There is a distinction between Jews, and there definitely are socioeconomic differences here indicated by the terminology slave or free. Even today, of course, literal slavery exists in many parts of the world, but even short of it, there surely are inequities and imbalance in terms of the distribution of wealth. There are these distinctions. To say there are not is a crazy thing. Paul is not arguing against the reality of human distinctions. He's saying those distinctions in no way grant some a different approach to God than others. All of us, all of us, by faith, are no longer under a pedagogue, a child custodian, are no longer imprisoned in, uh, by the law. Those of us who've been baptized, in, united by faith in the Christ Jesus, clothed in his righteousness, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, a slave or a, fr- a free person, male or a female, the field is been, has been leveled. Every one of you has access to the throne of grace by that very thing, God's grace through your faith. That's what he's saying. In the day, the Gentiles might have felt like second-class citizens. God gave the law of Moses to the Jews, but not to us. We can never be made right with God. We don't even have the means of righteousness. Paul says, what are you talking about? There's no difference between Jew and Gentile with regard to the means of salvation. A slave in this day was a piece of property, chattel. You were owned by another person. You were considered to be subhuman. Paul says, baloney, maybe that's how a corrupt and wicked society divides itself. But in the eyes of God, no such thing applies. The slave master is not better than the slave. You're one in Christ Jesus. That's what it says. You're one in Christ Jesus. So this is the grand experiment of almighty God. 
in spite of the diversity to show to the world the possibility of unity in spite of the diversity. So in the body of Christ, you ought to see Jews and Gentiles, and you ought to see blacks and whites, and you ought to see males and females, and you ought to see people, some of whom are poor and some are well, who are well-to-do in the body of Christ. And not a one ought to be comparing himself or herself to another. The woman doesn't need to try to become like a man, the man like a woman, the Jew like a Gentile, the Gentile like a Jew, etc., etc., etc. No, because God sees value in the way he has uniquely created each of us. At the risk of misusing the term, we could be proud of our ethnicity, our race, our gender, and all the rest. Not the kind of pride that makes us think we're better than anyone else. The kind of pride that says, oh, God, I'm so grateful you made me the way I am. You didn't make a mistake with my skin color, with my gender, and all that kind of stuff. You don't make mistakes. I'm not a mistake. And so the church is like God's grand experiment to show to the world what it can produce even by civil rights legislation can be produced by the gospel of grace. Civil rights legislation doesn't eradicate racism. It just forces it underground, doesn't it? It can't change the heart. It's the law. The law can't impart life. I didn't say it's a bad law. I'm just saying it can't change my heart. Only the gospel of grace can change my heart. And that's why when a church is guilty of racism, and many churches still are, to me, it's one of the most heinous sins the church can commit. Can commit. Because God wants to demonstrate uh, in the whole spectrum of human distinctions, he can make us one in Christ Jesus. And when the church says, eh, not so much, that is a heinous, heinous sin, it seems to me. You are one in Christ Jesus. Then Paul closes his argumentation with this. And if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to promise. Folks, uh, I'm a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, genetically. Spiritually, you, believer in Christ Jesus, you're a descendant of Abraham. You are Abraham's seed, as am I. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles and people of all kinds of stripes and complexions and, and all the rest. The gospel can do what the United Nations can't do, what no peacemaker can do. Only the Prince of Peace, Jesus, can pull off unity in the body of Christ in spite of its diversity. Folks, you ought to fight like crazy. Any insinuation that what Jesus did is not enough, that he didn't suffer enough for you and I, I've got to add to it. Now, please let me emphasize this point, uh, as I think Paul did. I'm not saying in any way that doing good things has no place. It's the order in which it's done. If the doing of good things precedes your confidence in Christ, then you're seeking to be saved by the doing of those good things. No, the good things has to be subsequent to the profession of your faith in Christ. If you profess faith in Christ, but your behaviors don't seem to be changing so as to be consistent with Christ, there's reason to believe, as James said, that kind of faith is dead. So I'm not talking about a mere verbalization of some words. I'm talking about words which are consistent with an internal change. When God sends his spirit to indwell us, he makes a difference. That's the evidence of salvation. And if you can't see that difference in the life of someone who's professed to know Christ, yet there's good reason to believe that uh, person's faith didn't take, was not regenerating faith. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. So I'm not denigrating the role of morals and ethics and good things. I'm just saying you can pile up as many as you want, but they still fall short of the glory of God. You better seek salvation on the basis of Christ's merits, not your own. Once you are consumed with the meritorious work of Christ on your behalf, his irrational show of grace to die in your place, then you ought to be exploding with uh, evidence of it through good deeds, good works that please the God who saved us to begin with. We're not doing the good works to be right with him. We're doing the good works to say thank you to him for making us right through the righteousness of Christ, not our own. We don't possess any inherent righteousness. That's what religious people are stumbling over. They think they have the capacity to summon up through performance a measure of righteousness that will appease a perfectly holy God. Can't be done. Cannot 
cannot be done. I prefer the second option. I don't want a do-it-yourself approach to salvation. I'd rather have a done-for-you approach. And when I find that what Christ has done for me is enough, I know it is because he said it is finished. It is finished, paid in full. When he did that, why in the world would I want to add to it in any way? I'll tell you why. Because of human pride. I'd like to be able to say, oh, thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. And I'm sure you're grateful for my role in it as well. It's taken two of us to save me. Thank you for your effort. That's really wonderful. And now I know you appreciate my efforts as well. Oh, so it's human pride that you see will want us to uh, uh, complicate the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Folks, which category are you in? Are you doing whatever you could to please God in your own strength? Or are you saying nothing I could do could ultimately please God? Uh, therefore, I accept the one who pleased him most. This is my only begotten son with whom I am well pleased. And when I am baptized in Christ, when I'm united with him by faith, <clears throat> I have the Father's good pleasure as well. There's a difference between a relationship with God and a religious experience that keeps you climbing a ladder of good deeds, trying to raise yourself up to God's level of high expectations. It can not, it cannot be done. Don't seek to do it. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us. We don't have words sufficient to express how grateful we are for your inexpressible gift. You really did save us. It's an oft-used term, but it means a lot. We were in prison. You redeemed us from prison. You set us free. You got us out. We were uh, defiled in our own transgression. You cleaned us uh, by your shed blood. You set us free not to do what we pleased. You set us free now to do that which is pleasing to you. Uh, not because we have to, because we want to. We are grateful, oh God, for the sufficiency of your work in redeeming us. We don't want to go back to a pedagogue, a child custodian. We'd rather function as matured sons and daughters of God, set free by your grace, free to serve, free to worship, free to tell others they too can be set free. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for bringing together a marvelously diverse family, the unique family of God, the differences of which you, you love and are pleased with. Help us, O oh God, to provide evidence to the world of a united front, the likes of which no other organization can do. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you folks. Lord willing, we'll continue with... Oh, no. Next week, we're having a guest speaker. You saw the video about him. Guests from Israel will be here teaching our class next week. Hope you can come. God bless you.